How do you say your last name? Uh, Fry Gang. Fry Gang? Yeah, like French Fry and then Gang. Fry Gang. Okay, Fry Gang. Cool. Nice and Americanized. <laughs> yeah. What's the uh, origin of the last name? Do you... That's German. German, okay. The Fry yeah. Gang. But, uh, uh, yeah, I guess yeah. you'd say we just go Fry Gang now. Yeah. Too many like school assemblies where no one can say it right. Yeah. We just try to make it easier. Do you have like German parents or grandparents or anything like that? Or how far back is the yeah, I th- ancestry? I think if I got it right, my grandfather on my dad's side, I think his dad was the first oh, immigrant okay. in our family coming out of Germany, something like that. Yeah. Like Maybe nine, one more. Like 1910 or something like that? Or yeah. yeah. Before that even? Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, I've got like a bunch of mixture of European heritage, I guess, but sure. I'm pretty sure on my uh, really both parents' side, I guess my aunt and uncle, I went to visit them when I was younger, and they had this genealogy of our family history on my mom's side. Oh, sure. And it went all the way back to like the founding of America. It was kind of cool. Oh, really? Apparently, I don't know how verifiable this is, but apparently uh-huh. they would, said that my you know great, 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 great grandfather was George Washington's drummer boy in the no. Revolutionary <laughs> War. That's um, insane. That, that'd be cool if it's true and kind of want to believe it, but I don't know if yeah. that's just a story or not. Yeah, I we did some ancestry stuff too. My my dad's parents are really into that. Ours didn't. We couldn't get that back far though, or that far back. So yeah. it's really interesting that that you could trace it so far. Yeah, and I know also my mom's side. I'm not sure where it splits off in the mother father lineage all the way back, but my like five greats grandfather was Samuel F. B. Morse, who invented Morse code. No kidding. So that's kind of oh cool, God. I guess. But yeah. So your your family name is Allen, right? Yeah, Allen. Is that you think that came from like immigration? Because I know a lot of people would take first names as last names yeah. to Americanize it. Yeah, but like looking up Allen, I think most Allens have like English background. Oh, okay. But that yeah, I guess that'd be my father's side. My um, my mom has uh, well had a British half brother. Okay. Who, his family had had this genealogy, um, or like this chart. So he had a bunch of, like, he was actually born in Britain and had a bunch of British siblings. So I've got, like, a ton of cousins or, like, I don't know what, second cousins or something that I've never uh-huh. met. But it's one of those crazy stories where my mom's dad was leading, like, a double life and had two wives that didn't know about each other. Oh, and no. And like, a way. secret family. <laughs> oh, my God. So each family was kept secret from the other, and he, like, split <laughs> his time between them, and they found out of each other, about each other, like... It was like 15 years ago now. 15 years? Oh, okay. How long did he? How long was he able to keep up the ruse? Do you know? Well, they didn't find out about each other until his kids were, were like 40. Like my, my mom was like 40 oh and she found out she had a brother, a half brother that she didn't know about. How do you How do you do that? Like live in a family and, and be gone 50% of the time? You, I don't know. They just have to believe that your work is really demanding or something. <laughs> I could see it as like if you have a military job and you're kept like overseas a lot of the time. Yeah. You kind of have an overseas family and a... Oh, where sure. you originally are from family. Uh-huh. So then you only spend half the year with one family. And they, they believe that when you're over overseas, you're just like doing war stuff. But really, right. you're doing some war stuff, but also just spending time with your secret family. Oh, my God. Yeah. Secret families. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Unfortunately, though, um, my uncle died in a car crash like four years after I met him. He was oh, really man. cool, though. No, I'm sorry. But yeah. So... <laughs> Um, <laughs> is this the time to introduce? Yeah, the time, this is the time to start the podcast. 
Welcome to the Regular People Podcast. I'm Wade Allen, and joining me today is Craig Frygang. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Wade. Oh yeah, no problem. Craig is a ballet dancer, which I think is really interesting. I don't know many of those, or any really, aside from Craig. And we'll probably be talking about that, as well as I'm sure politics, as the election just happened quite recently, and probably a few other things. So to start us off, give us a five-year background on your life and what you've been doing in that time and how you've changed. Sure. So five years ago from now, I still would have been in high school. Uh, and I went to high school in Milwaukee here in Bayside. So my schooling was a bit interesting because I grew up in a couple of different places. Um, I was born in Michigan. But I spent some time abroad in Germany at a international school. Do you speak German at all? Uh, a little. It's, it's pretty rusty now. Yeah. Did you speak it well when you were there? Yeah, it was fairly well. It was it was kind of like I took it in school, but just yeah. through osmosis and like trying to buy groceries yeah, like immersion. and stuff. Yeah, yeah it, it caught on pretty fast. Was the school entirely taught in German, or was it just you had a German class in that school? The school was uh, English. Oh, okay. And that's part of the reason that we went. My dad works for a bigger international company, and yeah. so they had just opened a battery wing. I think they were making lithium-ion car batteries. So he okay. works in finance, so he was there to kind of oversee some of the starting of that company. Yeah. So when they moved us out there, we got into this school because it was the only English-speaking school, and so the company kind of paid to have us in there because that was the only option. But it was, it was interesting going from like a very small town with classes of like 48 people to a giant international school that was a lot more like high life yeah people that sounds cool it was good exposure i think kind of eye-opening yeah you know where in germany that was yeah i was in hannover so it's kind of like near berlin maybe an hour or two and like Celles around there too yeah yeah it's nice town beautiful beautiful town what age was that that you were there i was there when i was like 12 and 13 so those like crucial years of of growth yeah uh, so that's that, a good time to be in a different country I think. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and so then after that i came back to michigan for about two years uh and then we moved to milwaukee for again for my dad's job it's like the headquarters was here so he was commuting a lot and then oh, okay. we just made the move wait he was commuting from michigan to milwaukee for his job towards the end oh uh, yeah. not before like moving. every day but yeah. a lot of the times for like meetings and, and that kind of stuff yeah Made it easier on my family, I guess, to move closer. My school was good. The school I got into, or like our local public school, was a really good one in Wisconsin. So I was kind of fortunate to land there. And then the Milwaukee Ballet was there as well, uh, which was a much higher level of training than, than what I was doing. Do you mean it was like close by or was there was a presence at the school? Oh, it was close by. Okay. The There wasn't really a big company in Michigan where I grew up. Yeah. So... I had like local studio that I went and kind so you of started were training. Interested in ballet still when you were in Michigan when you were younger? Yeah, probably. Okay. I started when I was like ten. I guess yeah. I feel like ballet is definitely one of those good examples of a career that you probably have to start when you're young. But it seems like it's always that way. People are starting when they're six and seven. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. A lot of people I talk to do it when they're four. Four. You know, yeah. They put on like the tutus and they just like spin around in class for a few hours or whatever. Yeah. But, wow. Yeah. So I got a bit sidetracked there. So I guess <laughs> went to high school in Wisconsin, and that was 
It was good. I came in after freshman year, so it yeah. took me a while to like find some friends and, and get grounded because most people had already made those connections, and I just kind of jumped in. Uh, and I was always at ballet after school, so I had less like social time, I guess, yeah. than most people. But I, I liked it that way. I like to be busy, so I don't mind. And so all throughout high school, I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, and my time was pretty heavily split because I would be at ballet like as soon as I got home I had like 20 minutes and I'd go to ballet and then get home at like 9 30 or 10 and like try to do my homework or whatever so it just became more like secondary ballet was that long yeah wow. usually like seven hours or something well I would usually have like three or four hours every day yeah after and then on the weekends we'd have like pretty big six oh, okay. or seven hour days depending so pretty pretty intense, I guess, for being yeah. like 16 or whatever. It was good training for what I wanted to do. So as I kept going through high school, uh, got to my senior year, everyone's trying to figure out what they want to do or whatever, looking at colleges. So I, I applied to one or two colleges. I got good grades, but I wanted to do ballet just because mostly because it was what I was good at yeah. at the time. And I wanted to to give it a shot. The career is such like a timeline of when yeah. you can do it. So I was like, well, I can always go back to school later if I if I want. But I mean, there there's a fuse on my career as a ballet dancer. So I decided to to pursue that. And I finished high school semester early so I could do more ballet. And then I also did a little bit of online university there just to try to like diversify myself. Yeah, I guess. And then I did a bunch of auditions at the end of the year and ended up going to Texas, to Austin, and as like a trainee. So basically we had our own classes during the day and our own performances and we do some work with the company. Uh, and it was a lot of hard work that year, but it was fun. And Austin was still one of my favorite cities. You were there for a full year? Yeah, I did a full year there. It was beautiful, sunny, warm. The food there was great. No awful like... 12-inch snow deep winters <laughs> yeah. so i did, yeah, didn't like miss here. that i got a little bit spoiled from there and hey, what age were you when you did that when i was in austin i would have been turning 18 that year so that was like pretty recently yeah because are you, are you 20 now yeah i'm about to turn 21 okay cool did you notice that interest come first or a talent come first as far as ballet goes because you said you were doing it because you were good at it yeah. Were you good at it and then you be, you liked it or did you like it so you became good at it? <laughs> That's a good question. It was the way I got into it was kind of like this odd story because we were neighbors with a family friend who owned their own studio. And my sister was a dancer way before I was. She had been going since she was like four years old or so. And one of the days that our friend was over that owned the studio, she told my mom she's like well if your son ever wants to take class I'll let him do it for free because we don't have any boys so we would love to to have him and it won't cost you anything and I, my parents basically just wanted me out of the house I was super <laughs> I was super active all the time I had a lot of energy when I was young so I was doing martial arts and sports like yeah. little league and soccer and all this stuff and so they decided to put me in there and it was it was a lot of fun actually and then the girl I liked from school was also in there at the time, so that made it. That helps, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a big motivation for my early years, was yeah. just to stay around her, I guess. That is interesting, and it makes me think of one thing that I 
I was talking about this a little bit in the last podcast episode, mm-hmm. but the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I love that book. That's a fantastic yeah, book. Yeah, uh-huh. it's great. And it talks about, you know, how people become successful and become expert at what they're doing. Right. And so often they have these fortuitous circumstances that allow them to get really deep into certain like topics and they become really good at them. And usually it's like you get free access to something. And in your case, you got free access when you're a young kid to ballet exactly yeah yeah that was a huge uh piece of the puzzle because ballet classes are very expensive yeah mostly it's it's like a higher art and so it's very like a thing to attain i think for higher people like higher class people's children if that makes sense yeah and so they charge those higher class fees for it so i was very fortunate to be able to get my foot in the door for nothing (laughs) yeah that's uh yeah a great starting point yeah were either of your parents uh, ballet people? No. Or did it start with your sister? No. Uh, my It's kind of funny. My dad, is uh, he was a marketing major in school and is in a business route, so he does finances now. And my mom was a teacher. She was a speech pathologist, mm-hmm. so she worked with kids with special needs and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. But she was also a violinist in like our the symphony of where we lived in Michigan. So maybe that's where it came from, but now me and both of my sisters are all in the arts. Yeah. So I don't know what kind of combination there was of our of our upbringing, but it all pushed us in that direction. Yeah, there's at least some musical connection there. Right, right. Because my mom put us all on instruments when we were young. I used to play the violin. Oh, okay. I, I grew out of that pretty fast. I, Did you not like it? No, I couldn't stand it. I think it was because I had to sit still and be very disciplined. Yeah. And like, that was not who I was when I was that age. Yeah. So with the ballet training, I imagine there's still a lot of discipline that goes on there, but was it easier for you to get a handle on because you actually got to move physically? I think so. It's very exhausting, like class. Usually it's an hour and a half. And so, at least for me, it's always easy for me to focus when I'm tired because I don't feel like I need to do something or anything. I can just kind of sit. Yeah. That definitely was a big piece of it. I think why clicked with me more than something like violin was because I got to expend all this energy and then after all of that noise was gone it was a lot easier just to focus in yeah do you think <laughs> do you think you had any like ADHD or anything like that as a no kid? I've thought about this because now that I'm older it's not the same I yeah just kind of burned it all out I guess yeah this makes me wonder because I feel like I, I dwell on this topic a lot in my mind but sure that there's over diagnosis of like ADHD, ADD for kids. Definitely. And I wonder if like some kids who get diagnosed with ADHD and then they get, you know, some sort of medication to take care of it, if they wouldn't have been better served by, you know, like ballet classes or something like active that they can take out all their, you know, hyperactive energy on. Absolutely. And I I think it helped me in school too, you know, being able to to get all that uh, energy out all the time, every day. So... And I still feel like that now. I mean, talk about the COVID pandemic. There was like two months or something that I took off of, of dancing. Yeah. And I just remember like being in my kitchen, like every time I was around, I just felt like I had this well of energy that I'm not used to having. And this just reminded me, that's what it was like in school before I, I got super active with that stuff. Not in a bad way, but yeah. I just, uh, it's like more energy than I knew what to do with. Yeah, I guess I probably experienced that as a kid. I feel like it's harder and harder for me to remember my childhood. But I think I was a pretty active kid as well. Mm. I was part of like sports. 
I did like baseball, soccer, football, basketball, and all that, and tennis. Mm-hmm. But none of them I did like competitively. Really, it was all just the recreation, like parks and rec teams that you go on, just play against each other, and there was, nobody was keeping score. Nobody was the winner of the season or anything. Oh, sure. So yeah, we had lessons or um, practices and games, and I don't know that I was I was active and I was always like biking around the neighborhood. But I don't know if I really ever enjoyed that the sports, the like structure and the format of it. I preferred to be active in a way that was like more open-ended. Like I really liked snowboarding as a mm. kid because I didn't feel, I wasn't part of a team. I wasn't really trying to do a specific goal. I wasn't trying to beat anybody. I was sure. just going down a hill for fun. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I remember I really hated soccer because it was often like in the spring or something. And it was really like, it started when it was still like basically winter. So it was really cold and rainy. Oh, and yeah. we're just playing on these muddy fields and I have to run back and forth mm-hmm. all the time. And it just seems so pointless and like miserable. But oh man. It's an elevated mindset for a kid. You're like, what's the point? Yeah. We're just, <laughs> I'm just pushing this ball around. I should be. <laughs> yeah. It made more sense to me to just engage in like skateboarding or like bi- bicycling or something that was just, it didn't have that structure to it, but it was still an active thing to do. Sure. That's an interesting point. It makes me think people like to talk about ballet. Like it's, um more of an art form but in the years i've been doing it on the dancing side not the choreography side it feels a lot more like a sport like a athlete i was talking to one of my friends about this the other day a lot of places a lot of companies will have like a second company which are younger people uh, and it serves to train and like it's a feeder for the main company and they do a lot of community engagement stuff uh, and that's how they stay relevant in the community. And so they do a lot of things with young kids and they go to schools a lot. So I did this kind of a program last year and kind of destigmatize ballet or educate people about it and try to drum up some interest. So one of the things we always people ask is like, you know, what do you love about ballet? Something like that. And people always there, there's always someone who will be like, I love it because it allows me to like express my feelings or something. Yeah. I was talking to my friend about this the other day. It's like, we've, I've never felt that ever in ballet because for me, I, and not in a bad way, but it's more like I'm more of a tool, I guess, for the choreographer or the artistic director yeah. to kind of create his vision. So his emotions are poured into the work that he creates. And then it's our job to understand the emotions he's trying to convey and embody that. Yeah. So it's not really coming from you. It's coming from them. Like you can, you can draw on your own personal experiences and stuff to embody that, but it's not like your original idea, if that makes sense. You're more of a conduit. Yeah. That probably makes you a dancer that I'm sure choreographers and directors like, because you're not trying to take over their work or something like that. You're not trying to like usurp the idea and, and make it your own thing, like completely take over because mm-hmm. this kind of reminds me of acting like what you were just saying and in high school in my drama class we had projects where we had to like direct plays like one act plays and we got into groups in our class and we each like directed a play and then we had a competition where we had a night of performances where everybody showed up to the theater and then they vote the audience voted on who was the best um play so sure. so i directed a few plays and it was also always easier to work with actors who are open to the director's advice and their image of what they want the scene to be like yeah. rather than them trying to 
take over the scene and them trying to be the director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you were saying, it's good for an actor or a dancer to put in some of their own ideas into it. Yeah. But I feel like, yeah, you've got to acknowledge that the the main idea is coming from the director. And that's like the... Yeah, absolutely. The theme of it is is from them. And everybody, if everybody is trying to be the director of the show, the show is going to be chaotic. Right. But the cool thing is that you're still, whether you're conscious about it or not, you're, you're drawing on your own experiences. Yeah. So that's why if you have something like Romeo and Juliet, which is like a classic love tale and ballets have done it for so long. No, no two Romeo and Juliet will have like the same chemistry between yeah. casts because I guess love and like all the little touches and physical things that you do are very personal, like right. how you express it. But again, it's not like you're expressing your feelings of love. You're just trying to embody the prompts yeah. that you get from your director in the way that it means to you. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose I should, I should maybe restate what I was saying. Cause yeah, I guess I'm not trying to say that, uh, directors are authoritarian dictators in their plays or their um, ballets or their uh, musicals or whatever it is. Yeah, because each actor brings their own unique touches to it. And a lot of the time, I feel like as a director, you see an actor do something that you weren't expecting and you're like, yes, that, keep on keep on doing that thing. Sure. So it, it didn't even come from you, but you, you realize it was good and it came from that actor. So there's a certain balance or fine line to walk between where or the like the prompt or what where the emotion or the story is coming from is it coming from the actors or the directors and it should be coming from both in some measure but there's like a is it like a ideal line there and if it goes too yeah. far in one or the other, other direction then you can have dancers or actors who can't express themselves at all or who are overtaking the entire thing sure yeah it's a very interesting art form and like like acting and dancing in that that's like that weird balance i feel like it's not as common in other disciplines yeah Yeah. that kind of collaboration so you were were saying that you were asking these dancers from the second company what they liked about ballet dancing they said to express themselves right and you haven't felt that well more so every day we will take a class or something and that's like a huge part of of what we do just like in terms of the sheer hours, a lot of it is spent in, in class. So when you're four years old, you know, and you start for the first time or whatever, you'll do a class. And then when you're 35, the year of your retirement, you'll still be doing class. So yeah. it's like, and it's an essential part. But for me, the appeal and kind of what I like about it is it's less of an artistic expression, like, but it's the opposite. It's the time to almost shut down and go more like into a meditative state mm-hmm. of focus. And that's how I like to approach my dancing a lot more analytically. So if you think about doing pirouette, you fall out of a pirouette. There's a certain, you can think about your opposite shoulder coming around in a way and and how it realigns your body and then the pirouettes solve itself. And that's the satisfaction that that I love from it. It's this kind of day-to-day thing where you're fine-tuning your your technique. Because every day will be different depending on, you know, if you move a couch of six flights of stairs and your back hurts a little this way so you might be holding yourself differently than you did the day before so it's kind of that self-analysis and critique yeah that makes it interesting but that's a double-edged sword i guess this is oh, a the self-critique oh yeah yeah because you have to train to be your your own harshest critic yeah which i feel is true for a lot of artists but in ballet it's a huge obstacle 
to overcome. I think you kind of become your own worst enemy in a way. Do you think, I guess in your experience, does most of the critique come from yourself and not from like a director or a choreographer? Uh, it's pretty even. So when you start and you're young, it's going to be way more on your teacher's side because right? yeah. you don't really know what it should be. Yeah. And then I'd say by the time that you get close to being a professional, uh, you know everything in terms of like, it should be this way or this way. Because you've been doing it for 20 yeah. years. So it's, you know how it's supposed to look and it's more of just like making yourself do it. And so by that time, I'd say it's it's almost even. And then the further you get, the more it tips towards being all you. Because the older the dancer you become, generally speaking, the more the teachers will leave you alone. Yeah. Because they, they know you now. Yeah, you know what you're doing. Uh, yeah. And so... It's uh, an interesting mind game. Yeah. I would say it's almost as physical as it is mental in terms of being a good dancer. And a lot of people don't figure that out. Like requiring a lot of willpower? or Yeah, like, like mental fortitude yeah. to not spiral into like, so, like self-doubt and, yeah. and kind of trash your uh, mental image of yourself. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, maybe this is a sim similar question, but do you think the harshness of critique follows that same trajectory like compared to from yourself to your instructors do you think the instructors are being as harsh as you're being to yourself or yeah for or do you sure. think people are, are their harshest critic oh well, that's a good question uh and i think it depends on the, the person well yeah i guess that. yeah the instructor might be a asshole yeah most of them are <laughs> just to, <laughs> just to say because their job is not to tell you what you're doing well yeah. There's very much of that mindset. And I've met a few teachers that value positive reinforcement more, but it's very few. You know, a lot of it is you'll rehearse for six weeks or something. So every day for six weeks, all you'll hear is what you do wrong every day. Yeah. And it's not until the show, if you do the show well, that you'll get that positive reinforcement, generally speaking, which is good. That's what makes... It's such a high level of performance, yeah. but it can be very grading on yourself, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see <laughs> that. So that's And that's something I've been doing dance now for about 12 years, more or less, and that's something I'm still figuring out and finding my own balance with. And I think everyone does till the day they retire is yeah. kind of uh, maintaining themselves. Do you think a lot of dancers struggle with that to a point where it actually messes up their career or their dancing absolutely i like i don't i wish i had a statistic on it because yeah. it, it must be insanely high but if you look about the amount of people who start to take dance when they're young and then the percentage of those people that that take it very seriously yeah the amount that actually make it to a professional is very 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 small so is it the likelihood that they're going to make it to the professional level is that do you think mostly down to them like breaking down mentally and not being able to handle it? Or is it more them just not being good enough, like physically? Oh, sure. Well, that's, that's a good point because yeah. that's a huge piece of it. And something I think is very unique to ballet. Because ballet is something that is purely uh, visual. Uh, you have the, you have the auditory music and there's there's that element, but as an audience member watching, yeah. the the beautiful shapes and lines and everything, it's uh, it's a visual art form. 
and there's like there's these giant books of technique of like that have been hundreds of years old of like this is how everything should be uh, there's different styles like there's like a french technique and russian technique and all of this but because of that there's like a standard for how things look and how your body should look but as we all know like people's bodies don't come standard yeah. everyone's everyone's unique and so it becomes this game of trying to get your body to become these ideals and make up for your shortcomings i guess yeah. but there's only so much that's within your actual power to change since obviously you can't change yeah, you can't how remake you yourself right completely. so for me it's my feet i don't have the best feet in the world of dancers in terms of how much it points and how much natural flexibility my ankle has so it what should be pointier and should have more flexibility yeah so if you like have your uh, leg like flat against the ground and you point it yeah. some people's toes will go like a couple of inches off the ground but some people's will just touch the ground yeah. like they're naturally like their arch and their uh, ankle just has this flexibility where it can make a flat line and that's, that's good that's attainable that's what everyone wants oh okay usually people call it like banana feet or something because it's like makes like a full semicircle against yeah. the ground uh, and so i don't have that so when i was like 13 i think my teacher told me that like your feet uh i don't know if i can swear on the podcast oh no it's you just feel free, oh, feel free to swear. <laughs> yeah. she's an old school russian teacher and i remember i was like 13 or whatever fresh in milwaukee she's like your feet will be your bitch your whole <laughs> career forever until you're 30 it's still gonna suck it's yeah. just gonna be your thing huh. I, I mean maybe this isn't a good idea to do but it kind of makes me think of there's like geishas um in china or whatever who like bind their their feet oh yeah and then uh -huh. they like completely physically distort them to fit into a certain mold is that something that ballet dancers do at all dude it's it's a whole there's a whole world of crazy yeah. in ballet. <laughs> uh so like for example that same teacher that told me that I, there's rumors and i'm not sure if this is true if she actually did it well other people have actually done it people will, will break their feet oh yeah and get them remolded to be better yeah so some people said like she dropped a piano on her foot and then got it like restructured to be better whatever so when i was young i was i was pretty on the deep end when i was young i guess uh, in terms of like my obsessiveness yeah. with ballet so i used to like get really heavy boxes and like put them like stack them on my feet to, like, oh, to stretch it, like, it. Slowly bend but they'll it slowly down. get more <laughs> flexible and then there's these foot stretchers which have been like a big thing it's like really strong elastic and you kind of put your foot in it and like straighten your leg and the elastic pushes down yeah. but luckily there's been a lot of research lately uh, with like physical therapy and stuff that says it actually doesn't help it just makes it worse uh -oh. the way that you stretch it so at least in my experience and my like information tunnel of people I like see around me, that's becoming less and less of a thing. People yeah. are getting smarter about it now. So is it becoming more of just a, I've got what I've got. Yeah. Work with it. Yeah. There's, there mean, it? there's been tons of reform in ballet, I think, or at least yeah. among the dancers, a movement to make it more healthy mentally. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one of those things that I've started to see change in terms of like, uh, people trying to like alter their bodies is becoming way less common yeah but you still have a big problem with uh, anorexia and like oh, body yeah. dysmorphia and stuff that is still very prevalent for sure yeah i could see that because when i think of ballet dancer i mean i think of somebody who's very skinny 
Right. Just like a, a model, those two careers seem to almost require, in a typical sense, like the ideal that you see in magazines and all that, just extremely skinny people. Yeah. And then I think it was a quote from Balanchine. And Balanchine is like the the godfather of American ballet is what we call him. And that's like, he has his own style. So New York City Ballet, okay. which is one of our biggest companies, is Balanchine. It's a Balanchine company. He had a whole list of things that were like the ideal dancer. And I think one of the things he said was um, the dancer's skin should be the color of a freshly peeled apple. Some something like that. So now you have a whole new yeah. level of now it's like, racial discrimination, yes. and that's a big problem too. That people are finally freshly peeled fixing. Apple. Yeah, it's like pure white. Yeah, such an odd description. Yeah, yeah that's so. When was that that he uh, wrote those guidelines for? Oh, Balancing. Is it a long time ago? Not super long ago, but I would say he was. Oh, man, if any ballet dancers are listening, I get this wrong. <laughs> I'm, it's going to be shameful. Probably, I would say, like, 1950s and 60s. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that not area. Super, super long ago. Uh, maybe a little bit later. Yeah. So, is there years. a... So you got some sort of racial discrimination going on with the guidelines of what a ballet dancer should be at least according to him yeah do you also have any like heights requirements in there yeah that's a that's another thing so companies will vary on what they look for yeah so each one is different for example europe uh european companies prefer really tall dancers so if you go on their website and you're looking at auditioning they'll oftentimes have a bracket it's like well if you want to be in our company you have to be between 5 8 and 5 12 for men or this range for women and you'll just like if you're if you don't match that they don't even look at you yeah just throw um, your application and part of that is due to like the height discrepancy between men and women they need guys that are taller than the women so that they can partner them and like lift them around yeah, yeah. um so i mean it makes sense but uh some t- companies prefer like shorter people or some will have taller people and then some are really weird where they're like they like like really tall girls and stuff and it kind of those companies will build a reputation among the ballet world yeah or they'll be like oh you should go audition here because they like people of your body type whatever is there like a disparity in how many like men or or women are involved in ballet or is it like pretty evenly split the company most companies will have an even number of men and women but if you look at how many people are involved in ballet uh when they're younger there's it's very heavily geared towards uh, female. There's a lot right. more women in, in ballet than there are men. Does that mean, because if you think about it, if you've got a larger pool of girls starting off at young ages in ballet, and then mm-hmm. when you get to the professional level, you've got an even split, does that mean that it's more difficult for a woman to get into ballet? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why the the crazy ballet dancer stereotype is always female yeah. because the the competitive level like is Swan so much movie. higher yeah exactly it it breeds very quickly a, a toxic environment it yeah can, it can get bad pretty fast due to that high level of competitiveness but it's still just as well not just as but it's, it's incredibly competitive for guys too yeah. but it's almost unimaginably competitive for women right so with that um critique coming from your choreographer coming from yourself is there also like inter-dancer critique too do you have people that are on the same level as you 
giving you critique or does that not happen uh that's the thing some people will will do that and yeah. those people are usually the one everyone hates yeah well I they'll mean, just like start telling you stuff or whatever yeah. and like leave me alone i'll ask you <laughs> if i want you to help me yes yeah. get out of here does that happen a lot of, like in the with the hyper competitiveness like you've got other if it's like a bunch of girls trying to get into professional ballet are they like tearing uh-huh. each other down trying to get each other to quit oh there is there is a whole wealth of like horror stories yeah. from like auditions and stuff where girls will like cut other people's leotards in their oh, bags yeah. or something so they don't have anything to wear or like people putting glass in other people's point shoes oh. that's like a crazy thing yeah i've, I've like never that heard it happen banned actually, from ballet if that happens, there's so much stuff that should get you banned that doesn't but yeah another like a weird thing i guess in ballet culture is so you take the first part of classes at the bar uh, you basically are holding on to a yeah. support and it helps you get grounded and find your balance and so bar spots are a very personal thing. So in the studio, everyone almost always will stand at the same spot every yeah. day. So if someone takes your bar spot, oh. it's like a whole thing. And there's a hierarchy, right? So especially if you're a newer dancer and you take a senior dancer's bar spot, either you're going to get yelled at or they're going to like throw your bag across the room yeah. or no one will say anything. And now everyone just hates you. That's also <laughs> usually what happens. Yeah. Like a passive aggressiveness. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had it to the, I've had it to the extent once when I was in Texas, I was standing at a, I was taking company class and even though I was a trainee, so I was, or I was like a guest, I guess in the, oh, in okay. the class. So I was, I was with the higher level. So I was, I, you try to be very respectful, you know, like you let everyone take their spot then you go take your spot or yeah. whatever and you always stand at the back that kind of thing so after after bar was done i had to have my bag at bar which most people did there was usually you don't bring your bags into the studio but for that day i forgot what was going on but most people had their stuff with them so i finished okay. class and i go to the side and i put my bag down and some senior dancer comes she's like that's where i put my bag <laughs> and i'm like excuse me what she's like that's my bag's spot so move your stuff and so I, I guess I moved it like a foot to the left so she could put her bag in that specific spot. <laughs> this stuff like that. I'm like, come on. What? what is it about the ballet culture that makes that happen? Like, why do people care about having a square foot of space that belongs to them? I think it comes down to how we judge ourselves and how we feel good about ourselves. So I think for me, you'll almost never feel like the person at the front of the room thinks you're good right so i think that's different when you're older maybe and you've been with the company for 20 years and there's more of a trust but just due to like the constant uh, feedback you're not gonna feel good about yourself like every day so i think where most people's self-worth comes from is the competitive level where their self-worth comes from watching other people and like if they mess up something but you do it right that's how you feel good about yourself because no one else is giving you like positive reinforcement yeah so i think the the seniority comes from that level of like i've put in this work i'm at this level so know your place right uh, yeah it's just kind of make yourself a way to assert dominance yeah yeah for sure so with the um sense of like self-worth in your dancing that coming from watching other dancers does it any of it also come from like audience appreciation like you know if you are dancing and you get a standing ovation. Does that does that make you personally feel like some sort of validation as a dancer? 
<laughs> I think it's it's pretty bad because at least for I do or, or most of the people I know, it's more like the audience is really stupid. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, like they have they don't know they're expected to clap, so right. you don't really know if they're if they, or also you don't know if they're doing it for you. And yeah, the audience can't tell your mistakes that you know happened. Right, and yeah. so teachers will talk about it a lot. They won't know they don't know what a good pirouette is or what the perfect arabesque is. They'll be like, yeah. oh. The costumes are so pretty, or her hands are pretty, or whatever. Yeah. So they'll they'll clap for pretty much anything, <laughs> and so it's like because you you always you'll always know though like yeah. what what was wrong in that show or whatever. Yeah, and so it kind of loses meaning. Yeah. It, it it feels good. Don't get me wrong. Like at the end of the show, and the curtain goes up, and you, everyone's clapping for you, like that. It feels good, but um, it's like it's harder to understand like their perception of you doesn't really define doesn't really mean anything right because they don't they don't know as much yeah in ballet because i'll be honest i don't think i've ever really been to a ballet i'm sure i've seen plenty of ballet in my life but i don't think i've like gone to the ballet Mm -hmm. seen like you know video and stuff yeah is there a lot of times where you get like a solo so you can tell that if the audience is clapping it's specifically about you and not about the whole ensemble definitely so an example uh, in the Nutcracker, you'll have the sugar plum. So that's like the lead girl. And then there's like the cavalier or whatever, who's the lead guy. So a typical ballet structure, they'll come out together and they'll do a pas de deux, which is like a two-person dance. And that's where they're partnering or whatever. Yeah. And they do all the lifts and that kind of stuff. And then... Usually what happens is the woman will leave the stage and then the male will do a solo and then the man will leave the stage and the woman will do a solo and then they both come back out and will do a, a coda, which is a, like a, a finishing piece. Yeah. And in that instance, usually like the audience will like clap after everything. Oh, okay. And then when you do those higher roles, when people come out to do like a big bow at the end, usually they'll do it in kind of like a hierarchical right, way. Right, yeah, yeah. Like those. So you have like the core comes out and then like maybe some other people that did solos will have like their moment. Yeah. And then like the principals will come out and have a big moment. Sometimes people will bring them flowers or whatever and yeah. then they bring out the artistic director sometimes or the the conductor of the orchestra, that kind of thing. Yeah, I forgot about the curtain call because yeah, that happens in acting too. Mm-hmm. And that is, I guess, a good way to know that it, if the audience likes you more than somebody else. Right. <laughs> But it, it is important, and I feel like due to that culture of of feeling that the audience doesn't really know, yeah, people will sometimes lose sight that that's the end picture, right? The only reason that we can be yeah. on stage is if they like it. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, if you think about it in that kind of way, you don't really have to achieve perfection because the audience doesn't know the difference between an 8 out of a 10, 8 out of 10 pirouette or a 10 out of 10 pirouette. They look the same to the layman right but the reason i think that that competitive edge is still there is because your director knows yeah. exactly yeah. what it's supposed to be and then for like what casting in the next uh, performance then yeah they and take your, that into consideration and your job security yeah so the way that it works in ballet is you you sign a contract every season and there's there's nothing that will keep you for next season oh yeah uh, and that's, that's that sounds stressful oh oh tell me about it so it's a pretty american thing because uh, we're like very competitive yeah. here and so we're owned like ballet companies are private and so there's constant competition for those spots and then we'll have revenue from tickets that support us and if you have their school you'll have school income that supports us 
but also a big piece of it comes from donors. Oh, so yeah. we have we have a large list of donors who will who'll support the ballet, and then each dancer has a specific person that sponsors them. So oh, you'll really? go get lunch with them or write them letters, that kind of thing. Is, is there a limit? Like, can you only have one person sponsor you? At least for our company, that's how it works. Oh, okay. And so, and then if in the second company, if there's international people, so we get a lot of people from Japan, all of the Japanese students will have a particular sponsor that helps them get visas, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is that something that's a hard process to like find a sponsor? Do you have to do that yourself? They usually do it for you. Oh, okay. So I'm brand new to the company this year, so I don't have one yet. Uh, oh, okay. So as, but as like interest arises, I'll be like assigned one if someone wants yeah. to. That's kind of thing. So then having a sponsor that, seems like that'd be something that's good for your job security. Like, do they still not sign you up for next season if you do have a sponsor who's who loves you and is paying yeah, lots of money? Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, wow. it's like the interesting piece because uh, it's really not up to them. Yeah. Uh, and it's all up to one person, really. It's the artistic director. It's almost like a... Of like the whole company? Yeah. He's, he's has absolute power over everybody in the entire building. It's from costumes to the dancers, everybody. And so that's part of the stress culture that comes out of ballet, is there's no one that really does the day-to-day. Yeah. Like you have ballet masters and stuff, but it's like, say your artistic director walks by class, sees you for like three seconds, like your whole future could be those three seconds, because that's his whole opinion of you, and your whole job hinges on that opinion. Wow. So that that's probably the worst part, is always trying to think what they think of you yeah I do you that. come into contact with the artistic director a lot uh nowadays i do in the company but yeah. when i was in the second company it was very minimal and so those were like so stressful moments yeah. trying to like he, he i think that he taught class once the entire year so that one class you could everybody cut the tension was, yeah. with a knife in that room because everyone was just trying to get a contract so yeah that's like a like a interview or audition where you have to do it with a whole bunch of people that I don't know what probably makes it more stressful than doing an interview or audition just by yourself. Yeah. And then that's what makes shows stressful too. Cause at least for me, that's like what most people, that's all they care about who's watching. Yeah. Like usually we'll have like 12 to 1500 people watching us, but it's way less stressful than like that one person. Cause that's really all that matters at the end of the day. Wow. Is, this, is that just an American thing, the artistic director having absolute control? So an interesting thing about European companies is that the state or that the, the country will usually sponsor the ballet. It's a government-owned entity, so then yeah. technically all the dancers are government employees. Oh. And it's interesting because I guess European culture values arts more yeah. than American cultures, I'd say. And so usually they'll own like the opera house or the state theater and then you have like the ballet companies attached to those theaters and then they get like usually year contracts some places will give lifelong contracts like we work seasonally so yeah what's the season how long is that for so ballet? our season this year well our season this year is weird because of covid yeah. so we're going november to june or something and um, then we're like on layoff or like furlough for those months before yeah. it starts back uh, usually people would go like September to to May. Oh, okay. That's still a pretty long yeah. season for a season. And then it's super standard for American ballet dancers to file for unemployment in those few months off. Yeah. Or people do other jobs or like find other things to do, 
which is really strange to like European companies that get paid all 12 months, even though they're not yeah. performing all 12 months. It's kind of like a teacher's um, experience, I guess. September yeah. to basically May. And then yeah. the, the summer months, you have to get a second job or something like that. Yeah. And so like now I'm in an interesting place because I never really wanted to do do it like that with the unemployment yeah. because I kind of don't want to just like lay over and be like government help me yeah. you know every year uh, and so I worked this summer and I, and I quit my job I guess to go back work at the ballet when we started yeah. but now because I did that I won't be able to file unemployment for like two years or whatever it is even if I want to they have these qualifiers so basically if you're able to work and then just don't yeah then you can't get money so it's a whole thing within the ballet of people like quitting jobs it's people don't do it yeah because uh, as soon as you make that choice you either have to keep working you know or figure something else out wait two years yeah. wait two years yeah wow so this summer was super interesting a lot of people got screwed and disqualified from unemployment over little technicalities in their forms and stuff yeah so some people just budget really smartly through the year and they save up enough each paycheck so that they can just live off of that the summer right does I don't know, the average ballet job pay decently, pay pretty well or? Uh, it pays well compared to uh, like a normal, uh, yeah. no experience required. Yeah, like entry level job. job. Yeah. Uh, and so we are, our company is unionized through a big union that covers ballet companies and I think some actors and symphonies. It's called the American Guild of Musical Artists or AGMA. And so AGMA is basically negotiated dance or pay rates oh, okay. for each year with like a 2% increase or whatever. So and so I know, for example, if I leave the company I'm at now, any other company I go to that's AGMA will have the same pay rate. Yeah. So Is that most sense. companies, do you think, are part of that union? A lot of the big ones are. And part of it is because of the, the toxic uh, culture that it breeds uh, due to the competitiveness we, people unionized so that they had more protection from yeah. their directors oh, okay. and that kind of stuff. Do you think talking about the toxic culture of ballet is something that would get you in trouble? Or is this something that ever, all the ballet dancers just acknowledge? I think, uh, I think it's common knowledge. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no way you can be in the world and, and ignore all the problems from the, the competitive level and like the body dysmorphia and like all that. It's, it's, it stares you in the face every day. Everyone knows it. From your experience, like what percentage of people that are in ballet struggle with the body dysmorphia or like anorexia or things like that? I don't know. And then, M- so more than half. I would say less than that. But than the half. thing is, I don't, I don't know people's right, mental states. So, so yeah. really, I, I only know hiding, if whatever. it's like obvious, like yeah, if you yeah. can like see it on a person. But that's I'm not sure really there's, something people talk about. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's so many people I don't know who who like stare at themselves in the mirror all day and yeah. throw up or that kind of thing. And it's really sad. And because it's so common, it's not something that people get help with yeah. in the ballet world. If that makes sense. Like teachers, even if they know, maybe they don't, some don't even see it as a problem. Yeah. Just part of the job. I've, I've heard people say that they've had teachers encourage them even like, wow. I'll show you how to make yourself throw up so that you can get skinnier. That yeah. Kind of thing. Not to put a bad label on all of ballet, right. it's just that kind of thing where the few bad eggs give like a bad reputation. Yeah. There's plenty of great teachers and, and great dancers, but yeah, yeah I guess it's, it's, it's there and it's something that we need to address and, and really focus on. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's like what the 
what you do kind of all day stare at yourself in the mirror yeah <laughs> judging your your own expertise and comparing yourself to other people yeah it's uh takes a certain mental state yeah to make it work so do you have any ideas of I don't know, maybe other ballet companies across the world are doing different things or like how would you improve the ballet culture to make it less debilitating for people's mental states? I think one of the first things that has to happen, well, for mental states, well, maybe just in general. So yeah, yeah. something that's been going around lately is people are finally talking about like the crazy things that have happened to them. I think there was someone from, I'm going to, I don't remember her name. She was Boston Ballet principal or whatever, or she or soloist, she was there for one season and then, and then quit. And basically made a whole thing about it on social media and, like, revealed everything that had happened to her. And, yeah. And, like, because she, she had a fine body. She was, like, completely normal for the average person, like, fit for the average person. But yeah. for ballet, I guess a lot of teachers said that she was, like, overweight. And, yeah. and she talked about everything that had happened and kind of, like, called it out and that started a big movement where everyone in the dance world started sharing their own experiences i think there needs to be a lot more of that stuff yeah there's so many untold stories of that kind of those injustices or like horrible moments and i think as soon as people really get it out in the light and everyone acknowledges that you'll be held accountable for the things that you do to your coworkers or students or whatever i think that's when we'll start seeing yeah. some change there was a big thing uh, two years ago i don't know if you heard about it with alexandra waterbury i think i got that name right in the sure. new york city ballet okay so i might get this story wrong i don't remember all the details yeah but is the new york city ballet like the biggest in the country they're they're probably one of the most famous okay. in america so that was balance sheen's company like the godfather i talked about yeah. this, that's what he started uh, and so it's got um yeah it's super famous. It's also famous in the dance world for being probably the, the most toxic environment yeah. out of all the American companies. But basically what happened to her, and again, apologies if I get this wrong, I might not have all the details right. Something like she was dating somebody in the company that was older, and he had sexually explicit pictures, which I guess is pretty standard if you're in a couple, you have some saucy photos or whatever. <laughs> but he started showing them to donors and other administrative people and it was this whole thing and so she was younger in the company and like really trying to get a job and so yeah. i think they broke up and, and maybe that's what happened okay. that's part of it or something like that so she didn't talk about it for a long time until she finally quit and then blew the whole thing up and lots of people got fired i think the artistic director stepped down yeah because of that um she like knew about it the whole time oh yeah yeah, she basically just unveiled the whole thing. Yeah. I think she quit dancing or, or quit dancing professionally. But it was awesome. I mean, it, it takes it takes so much like strength to yeah. do that in the in that world because there's so many like little things I guess that happen every day. That was a pretty big one. Yeah. But it's just not something you talk about. You just accept it as part of the culture, I guess. And so that was huge, I think. And and she actually made some change, I think. Yeah, in terms of starting to make people accountable for what they do. Do you think there's a like noticeable difference when you get to the professional level in like the toxicity of the culture? Because from both of those things you talked about with the Boston and the New York City one, it seems like these people were got to the professional level and then quit, but then like 
something awful happened that made them quit and call out the whole uh, career path, call out the ballet culture. So, like, were these things not happening to such a degree when they were younger? And then all of a sudden, the level of horribleness rose when they got to the professional culture that they had to actually finally say something about it? I, I would actually say it's worse when you're younger. So it's just like this slow buildup of all this like stuff well, that's been happening to you that you finally... It's it's more people um, want jobs so badly when they're younger. So like in the like in the second company program, which I did last year, you already whittled down to 20 out of like who knows how many hundreds of people that were trying yeah. to get in. And then out of that group of you, 20 or so, there maybe will be one spot, maybe, if someone decides to retire or yeah. something. So it's a complete shot in the dark. So a lot of these things happen. And that's probably the most, like the worst um, environment, I would say, in ballet are those moments when you're like right out of high school trying to get jobs because yeah. the competitiveness and uh, self image and stuff, that's like at its peak. And no one's going to say anything when stuff happens at that level because they want a job so badly and they need jobs and it's not until people are older i think and get more work experience and like life experience where they're like oh this stuff is not okay and this doesn't happen in in other fields that's a good point uh where they finally decide like they can talk about it yeah so were you the one of 20 people in the second company that got got the spot i actually got incredibly lucky to be where I was last year because we had three spots open up, which oh. is insane because that was, almost was never happened. Was three happens. people retired? Well, what happened was one person retired. Actually, two people retired. But they had, in the previous year, I think just through people retiring or changing companies or whatever, they had a bunch of spots open up and they took on like six new people, which is crazy for a company of 20. That's yeah. huge. And then they were still trialing out all these new people because every single one of them was not from within their school. That were just people that they hired in. And so out of all of those people, three of them weren't like renewed. And so there were these like wealth of spots that are it's super uncommon. So I really just happened to be in the right place at the right time Yeah. to, to make that happen. And the ballet just started up again recently, right? Yeah, we were out for like seven months or something, six yeah. months. When did you get signed on for that? Like yesterday. Oh, okay. was that ever, was that like in, in doubt or something you were wondering if it would actually happen or not? Uh, I I signed like a letter of agreement at the end of last year. Yeah. Saying that they wanted to hire me in. Okay. So like uh, but I didn't get my actual contract until yeah. like just just now. Okay, that's good. So with all this um, I don't know, like mental hardship and like the fortitude that it takes and the environment of hyper competitiveness what what do you do like personally to overcome that i cook <laughs> i do other things yeah <laughs> that uh, that help me take my mind don't off like of focus it. all your time every day on ballet yeah, yeah i think i think it's super important so people you know they do this when since you're four or whatever yeah so it kind of becomes your whole, whole your life. whole world yeah so i think it's important to like broaden your world and so it's, it helps put things in perspective, right? Yeah. So we're not we're not doing open heart surgery, right? So it's like there's no lives at stake or whatever. It's your own personal performance, but it really does feel like your whole life in those moments. So I think the more you like broaden your horizons, the easier it is to cope with all the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. 
which leads me to something else I wanted to talk about, which is the role of uh, arts in our society. Speaking of like, because ballet is pretty self-serving. I think dance is self-serving uh, in terms of its impact on society and like what you get out of it. It's more like your own personal experiences that are really special and, and fun. Right. So in, in that kind of way, do you think most dancers do it for their own enjoyment rather than doing it as like to make other people happy? Yeah, absolutely. I would okay. say that like 100%. Oh. <laughs> um, I think there's some people on the administrative side that have more of a view that's like how dance can be used to positively affect others. But due to how competitive it is, or like how hard it is to survive as a company, a lot of it is um, just trying to stay open, yeah. you know, survive. Like the nutcrack, the nutcracker is not gonna change anybody's life. The re <laughs> the reason we do is because you get like two million bucks every time we put on yeah. the show, and that's literally what keeps our doors open. Right. But presumably, like people show up to it and pay buy tickets to go see it because you know it's a fun thing to do. It makes them happy. Or yeah. Something. Right. And so the way I look at arts is I think the arts what the purpose that they serve is uh, an escape yeah. for the average Joe, I guess, from the stresses of work and life. You can just go and focus on something else that's fun. It can be you go with your family, usually, and that's what it serves. Same with music. See, like You put it on and you just zone out. And yeah. You you're not thinking about your taxes or politics or whatever. Yeah. And then like for the dancers, it gets hard because now most people's escape becomes your whole world so it's like where do i where do you go to escape yeah whatever so how do you think about um arts that are built or made with like the real world in mind such as like maybe critiques of society or something if you make a song and the lyrics are all about the problems that you know we face is that still an escape because then it's kind of like the song mm -hmm. itself that you're trying to zone out to is reminding you of Societal issues. That's a good point. And I think a very small percentage of people are able to like harness their arts for change. Like, yeah. I don't know if you listen to Run the Jewels. Oh, yeah. Their last album, I think, is all like politically driven and like socially driven. And there's a lot of people. Anderson Pack just had that song that came out about uh, quarantine and the pandemic and yeah. lockdown and like the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's really cool to see people using it like that. Yeah. Dance. I don't feel like right. usually becomes that kind of a force to make people think. There's some, and I will say we've definitely done things where the 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 whole performance, like we did something a couple of years ago where the, the piece was about self-image and it really made you think as a time of reflection. But it's you have to be very calculated with the risks that you take and how it will be received by yeah. the audience because every year is a struggle to survive. I, yeah, some people are showing up expecting escapism and they get confronted with something they have to think about that's <laughs> yeah, challenging. Yeah, or, or, or the opposite side where you get too experimental and you show up and there's people with like turtlenecks over their heads and they're like rolling around on the floor <laughs> with foam rollers. People just walk out. It's yeah. like, what the heck is this? Do you um, ever, is interpretive dance something that's at all in the same world as ballet? Or are those like entirely different? I don't really know much about interpretive dance. Yeah, you've never done it yourself in any way? In no. any way? Okay. I've made fun of it before, <laughs> but maybe I don't really know. Maybe I don't really know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, like, I just wonder if like the same skills are involved. Maybe not. Yeah, interpretive dance, I don't know, maybe maybe too too wild. It can be so many different things that it's not like the same type of uh, 
discipline involved mm. as ballet. I feel like maybe different aspects or different categories of like the arts lean more towards being about like political things. Like I feel like music, I mean, compared to like you were saying dance, probably more likely to be something about like a critique of the world and maybe like movies the same way. Cause you go see a lot of movies and it's like trying to make you think about some sort of aspect of society. Right. I mean, there's also a lot of movies that are just simple escapism. And then I feel like most uh, video games too are more just about escapism and pleasure rather than making you think. Yeah. And I think when people are able to start using it as a tool for like changes in society to like really make a statement, it, well, I'll say as a qualifying statement. And most of the times it's, it's when people have the security to do so. Yeah. Like they've been established as an artist, so now they can start experimenting more or whatever because they have like a solid base. Although I will say there are artists, like especially I think of music, musical artists a lot, where the, the whole reason that they became popular was because they started from day one because they had something to say. Yeah. Right? They have a statement. So I see that side too. Yeah, I feel like um, a lot of rappers start out that way as there's a statement that they need to make and then they become successful. Yeah, and then absolutely. and then like it's kind of like the reverse trend. Some somehow their their career becomes like in the beginning years they're talking about like real problems, uh-huh. and then towards the end they're just they're they're, they're just <laughs> rapping about you know how rich they are. Yeah, and it's like oh kind of yeah. kind of lost your message somewhere along the way. Yeah, the arts the arts are a weird thing, uh, in terms of their like relevance to society and, and that we make money off of doing something that's not really an essential function. Yeah. If you think about it from that perspective, I always thought that was kind of strange. Like I'm sitting in this apartment and I'm like, my dancing like paid for all of this, which is such a strange thing to think about. Well, I mean, I don't know though, if you if you break it down just to necessary parts of society, then I don't know, like is is life even as enjoyable or maybe even worth living at all at that point if people don't get paid for things that they that make other people just happy instead of making other people survive. Because then you wouldn't, I don't know, what would you do with your free time? Nobody's making any video games. Nobody's making any music. That's true. Nobody's bothering to do anything that isn't essential. That's very true. And I guess that's where I think arts become kind of a proclamation of like how far the hu- like humans have come as a species. Yeah. It's like we have now evolved beyond the fact where we just need to survive. And so what the arts are is that embodiment of culture and joy and the other things of life that we can enjoy now because we've reached this point yeah i guess like yeah culture itself is just kind of unnecessary (laughs) yeah it's but it's cool i mean it's very human yeah you know i don't don't know anything about dog culture i don't think dogs (laughs) have culture yeah something that we do they don't have the i guess luxury of not having to worry about their survival i guess pets do but then they're too separated they can't uh come together and make a cohesive american dog culture or something like <laughs> right, that right right oh man maybe to do a complete 180 we've been talking about arson valley for a while why don't we talk about the uh election oh yeah it's uh i think it's been something on everyone's mind for a while we just got the results i guess while we're yeah. filming this we got it yesterday yeah yeah was it yesterday i think so right or was it two days ago no yeah i think you were right it was yesterday yeah huge, huge yeah huge, what, huge. what did you think of the results i I was a little bit behind, actually. I was sitting uh, at so my was Trump. kitchen table. <laughs> he was golfing. 
Was he really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear about Apparently, that. Apparently, like, while they were announcing on the news, they were like, oh, Trump is golfing right now. We're not going to interrupt him. We're just going <laughs> to wait until he's done and then tell him. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, yeah, I was just, like, having breakfast, sipping my coffee, and I was like, oh, it's been a while since I checked the poll results. And I was like, oh, it looks a bit different. I was like, oh, my God. Hell, he won. It's nuts. Yeah. I think my sister was on the phone with my mom, and none of us knew. And I was like, Biden won. And she was like, what? She's like, Biden won. She's like, through the phone. (laughs) Yeah, my girlfriend had a cool story about how when she found out. So she lives in New York City, which has been going crazy, you know, the last few days over the election. Yeah. Uh, And so she was on the subway. So when it happened, she didn't have cell phone service. And she happened to be making, uh, she was changing trains at Union Station. So biggest, like everyone was there. So she comes up the stairs and she said, people are going crazy. Everyone's cheering and shouting. She's like, what the heck is going on? She checked her phone. She's like, oh no, no way. And it's bombarded by it. Yeah. What she's been doing is uh, she has a, an old film camera from her dad. So she's been like documenting pictures. So she said she got some really cool pictures of Union Square at the exact moment. People found out. People found out that Biden won. That's so. cool. That's like a historic image. Exactly. I'm really cool to, or really excited to see those those photos. It reminds me of like the, the you know the sailor kissing the random person on the street after, you know the war was over. Yeah. It's got the same energy to me. It's one of those yeah. really cool moments that we can look back on and you know it's like pictures like you feel a thousand the excitement words. through the picture. Yeah. It's it'll be cool to see. But where were you? Where were you when the news came out? Oh, I was just watching a youtube video and one of the things that youtube want really really wanted me to watch was uh like abc news them talking about how biden won and i had been checking like the the electoral map like updating from associated press like over and over the past few few days before that like every like maybe 30 minutes or so i was like come on nevada like hurry up (laughs) hurry up (laughs) um and so then, I don't know, I just, like, didn't check it for a few hours, and I, I would have expected to find out from my, you know, constant checking, but it just kind of sprung on me from trying to watch a YouTube video. But yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. And I wasn't expecting Pennsylvania, of um, of all states, to be the one that announced it. And then Georgia. Yeah, Georgia. Flipped in the, flipped in the end. Yeah. I was not expecting that at all. That was, that was big. I had some friends in Georgia, and they say it's been absolute lunacy over there. Yeah. For Georgia... They have um, runoff elections for both senators that are coming up in like on January 5th. Hmm. So right now, I think the Republicans have control of the Senate. And then it just, I guess, entirely depends on what happens in Georgia. But oh, yeah, it's going to be, I'm expecting it to be pretty gridlocked yeah. for his presidency due to yeah. the Senate. But yeah, I'm sure, maybe uh, that's Senate elections in Georgia will probably go Republican. I think that might be a good thing in the sense... I think people will be happy with four years of of calm. Oh yeah. Compared to last, well, most things compared to last year will feel like four years of calm. But due to the social environment with the Black Lives Matter movement, yeah, and like all uh, of this anxiety from the pandemic and everything, I think having someone in the office that is less dividing right. and less controversial is going to be like what everyone needs. I think everyone just wants to be able to exhale. You yeah. Know? Finally, yeah, to be able to forget politics for a little while. Yeah, so say what you will about Joe, I feel, but I feel like that's what he's gonna give us. Yeah, an exhale. Yeah, although I have been listening to various uh, doctors and scientific experts, and a lot of them are predicting that coronavirus will be our reality for the next like one to two years. Oh, really? So 
Yeah. Well, we might have some sort of political stability. I still think we might. It'll be turbulent, mm-hmm. no matter what. Like still, still wearing masks, still basically living as we live right now, but until like 2021. Gotcha. Or 2022. Sure. I don't know. The, the thing about Trump that got me going this past year I was actually my first time getting very politically active yeah. in a long time and I also live in an interesting bubble being a ballet dancer where it's just like everyone is so democratic there's yeah. like no liberal other bubble yeah. yeah and I live in the city so it's just like this whole my whole reality has, has been very liberal it was it was very concerning uh, especially like during all the debates and stuff the the way that things were becoming so divided between like the red states and blue states yeah. and so many times I think you talk about New York and he's like, look at it, like, look at the mess of the city that is or whatever. I'm like, you're their president too. Yeah. <laughs> like this, that's not how it's supposed to be. And, and coming out of like all of like, I feel like racial tensions are super high and like everyone is more divided than ever now. And so I'm, I'm glad that we've got someone in there who seems like that's a big thing on his mind. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the division is, you know, partially due to, the personality of the president and of like what's going on like socially with the American people, I guess. But at the same time, I feel like a fraction of it is just like inherent and due to the electoral college, because mm-hmm. as a Republican president, you are probably are drawn to towards the idea of thinking of like California and New York as not states that you even have to should spend any of your effort on because you know every single time they're going to be democratic right and then you know if you're a democratic president you probably know that like kentucky is going to go like republican so Uh like why with our current system would you put any effort into caring about kentucky when they're never going to vote for you yeah exactly and i think taking it a step further from it just being like the electoral college i think the whole two-party system yeah is flawed. And I, I know everyone loves to say that, but it it's is, so true. It is and flawed, yeah. no one wants to change it. Uh, and so like Germany, for example, I lived there for a while. They also have a party system, but it's, I forget, there's more. There's like four yeah. or five and they're way more evenly uh, powerful. Yeah. And so it's more like a proportional system where you like you give political parties power in proportion to how many people voted for, for them rather than, because I think that's, the majority of the problem is how we have first past the post voting. So just whoever gets to like whoever gets the plurality of the votes, whoever gets more votes than everybody else, they get like all of the uh, it's like winner take all. They get all of the, the votes. Right. It's like if you you got Senate races throughout all of the states, you're going to get like basically two parties for the senators because in each state you're running like maybe Democrat, Republican and then you've got your like independent parties or whatever and they're getting like one percent of the vote so it Mm. doesn't matter and how you do it as a proportional system is if a independent party gets one percent of the vote then they get one percent of the power so like of all the house seats they would have one percent of them Mm. or you know if the percentage of the people voting that that's where you allocate all the seats instead of you have to get like the most and then you just see oh you know the democrats got the most in this state so they get all the Oh, sure. Yeah, that would that would make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, another voting issue and thing I... Well, I think actually Nebraska and Maine are doing it kind of that way, more, more proportional with their electoral votes is like they've got, I think, congressional districts or something. 
Maine is split up into like four districts or five districts. And then within each district, they each have like one electoral vote. So if that district votes Democratic, then, you know, Joe Biden gets one of Maine's electoral votes. Mm. And then the other ones are split up individually. So rather than you as a candidate winning an entire state, you win a chunk of that state, which I think is a slight improvement. Yeah. And if you do things that way with also the House of Representatives and with the Senate, then I think you would have a more accurate Senate that's reflecting what the people actually look like. Because you mm-hmm. probably you got a decent chunk of people who would like to vote libertarian but can't because they know right. they're throwing their vote away. Exactly. For me, it trickles down. So you you have to like look at the two presidential uh, candidates, right? So you'll have to choose one from like your two options that you get. But then when it comes down to like state and local elections, the president doesn't have any power unless they're backed, you know, by their state and local officials. So at least for me, lots of the times, I don't even look at these people because I'm just yeah. like, well, yeah, it's going to be gridlock if they're not. You're just going to vote all the way down the line. Yeah. Yeah. You're like on my last ballot, I almost had only one choice for like nearly every single category, yeah. which was strange. Yeah, it just, feel, it just felt wrong, you know, as like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in terms of my freedom, I'm, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I was thinking about how, like, a state could vote for a candidate, a presidential candidate for a certain party, but then vote for the opposite party for a senator or for a congressman. Mm-hmm. I was like, how does that make any sense? And then I came to the conclusion that it, it seems like it's complete evidence of Republicans or conservatives who are anti-Trump. So you've got conservatives who, you know, are still conservatives, but they realize that Trump is bad for the conservative, like for Republican Party mm-hmm. in the end, even though he's the face of it right now or was. Sure. It's still damaging it. Trump is damaging, like, and he's damaging Democrats, in my opinion, too. He's making both sides worse. Yeah. So then you've got conservatives that realize this and think that, you know, even having a Democratic president for four years, that's better than, than Trump. So they vote against Trump. But they're still Republicans, so every other thing on the ballot, they'll vote for Republicans. Mm-hmm. So that's probably how you get in southern states Joe Biden winning the state, but a Democratic senator not winning that state. Because you don't have people consistently voting down the whole thing. Sure. Yeah, because they do want the gridlock. That's exactly what right. they want. They want not a crazy person as the president, but they want the Democratic person to be as restricted as possible. Right. <laughs> it, it's so it's so crazy how that works so I, I mean in a way it's this this election is probably the biggest win for those anti-trump conservatives right yeah right right he's a he's an interesting thought i was talking to someone in the valley the other day and he's from macedonia and he's been here for a while so he's a very interesting view of american politics since he's been here uh, but he was talking to us the other day and he's like well i think it would better if uh, instead of having people run together as an election, like your president and vice president, oh, yeah. if your vice president was the runner-up, which oh, is so funny that's to how think they used about. to do it. Exactly. Yeah. But they don't do it like that anymore. But could you imagine Joe Biden with Trump as his vice president <laughs> right now? The, the White House would be in flames. It, like, that would just be absolute yeah. nut house. <laughs> but, but it makes you think about yeah. how it, it starts to change the way that people are divided politically right. it would yeah it would kind of force people to have to work together and exactly because i mean at the end of the day it's like everyone's still like one american people yeah so yeah in 2016 you would have had trump as president and hillary clinton as vice president <laughs> those combos are just <laughs> and then so yeah i guess well. during your whole campaign if it worked that way again 
you couldn't well you could i guess but it'd be weird to run a, like a, a smear campaign and call hillary crooked hillary because then because then yeah, you're gonna you have, have to work, work with her, her either for, way for like four or eight years yeah yeah <laughs> it's an interesting thought yeah um, although i guess in that sense it would be a little bit weird in the way that when you get to the like primary elections you've got just one contestant really contestant candidate on either side at that point then you mm-hmm. you know for sure who's going to be in charge of the country you just don't know which one's going to have the, the more important position oh sure because you would know oh one's going to be vice president the other's going to be president and I, I don't know that that might change the dynamic in the yeah field a bit. i guess you would have Weird. to have more candidates yeah it might uh, make it seem kind of like scenario. a almost i i could see in that situation voter turnout being even lower because i think there'd be even more of a sense of it doesn't really matter because they're both going to be in these positions no matter what just one's going to be there one's going to be there right so yeah i think somehow having more candidates yeah if it were so one type of voting i'm really a big fan of is um ranked choice voting or also called it's yeah it's also called instant runoff voting or also um alternative single vote or whatever but basically on your ballot instead of saying i'm gonna check off this one for donald trump and then i'm gonna leave joe biden howie hawkins joe jorgensen blank Mm -hmm. you would do i'm gonna put donald trump number one i'm gonna put joe jorgensen number two i'm gonna put joe biden number three and i'm gonna put howie hawkins number four so then everybody has ranked votes gotcha instead Uh of just a single one and then what you would do is you would say Okay, to win the presidency, you need to get 50% or maybe even better, 60% or whatever of the vote, some number that you decide. Then you tally up everybody's first choice. And if nobody, no candidate gets past the threshold, 60%, let's say, then what you do is you look at the person with the least amount of votes, say that's Howie Hawkins, he got 6% of the vote. Mm -hmm. You remove Howie Hawkins from the race and you reallocate that 6%, all those people who put Howie Hawkins as number one. And then you look at those people's number twos. Right. And now you add those votes in. And you keep doing this until you get somebody past 60%. Gotcha. So then your vote matters no matter what. Because if your first choice doesn't go, then, you know, now your second choice is looked at. And it's somebody Mm -hmm. who you're at least more comfortable with than another candidate. Right. I like that. I like that a lot because then you don't have as many people that are just like getting their votes thrown away. Yeah. And then it would actually provide third parties the opportunity to grow because now if I really want to vote for the Green Party, but I, you know, in this current circumstance that we live in, I know that voting for the third party is just making uh, Democrats more likely to lose. I don't do that. Um, So the Green Party is never going to get any place of prominence because they're just doomed to less than 1% of the vote. In a ranked choice situation, I could put Green Party as my number one, Democratic as my number two, and... If everybody else does this because there's no reason not to anymore, now you would still have or you would have third parties actually able to win presidencies, sure, or yeah. house seats or whatever. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah, that's really cool. And then if we did the thing your Macedonian friend was talking about mm-hmm. with um, the vice president being the runner-up, then you could have a primary election where you have lots of candidates and you do ranked choice, so you don't know which of these two it's going to be. Because you've got, I don't know, eight candidates running. Right. And whoever the top two are, then you would have, yeah, your president, your vice president. So you might have a Green Party president and a Libertarian vice president, and they would be very head-to-head. But (laughs) Sure. Yeah. They'd have to work together. Right. That would be very cool. There's just so many problems with our political system that I think there's, 
an easy fix and it might not be a fix that's comprehensive and like you know completely solves all our problems but it's still a fix in the sense that it puts us in a better position just clearly better to do ranked choice than single vote right but i mean the the way that the candidates are able to get on uh, the front page as they do it comes from the support of their party so if you have someone running with ideas to change the system yeah. they're not going to get any support and they'll, they'll never make it anywhere close to the white house yeah it does threaten the political parties i guess makes them because you've got a whole bunch of people wrapped up in the democratic party or the republican party and if you want to change to a ranked yeah, no choice yeah no one's going to want to do it it's going to make their parties smaller and weaker yeah it's, yeah. it's like the the double-edged sword <laughs> yeah this idea there traps you although it's, it seems like on a local level it's happening which might bubble up eventually to towards like the entire federal like nationwide uh, presidential voting where like there's lots of counties and even some states that use ranked choice i don't remember i think one state at least uses ranked choice voting and it might be oregon really um, oh, i didn't know that. that i might be wrong on that but i feel like it's oregon so if you know it keeps on going statewide enough then eventually maybe in 50 years we'll have it nationwide yeah so before one thing you said that might go somewhere you mentioned how you didn't want to go on unemployment because you don't want to like rely on the government. Um, well, in that way, how does that? How do you feel on like democratic issues or like even socialist issues? And those aren't the same thing, I guess, democratic and socialism. But mm -hmm. such such as like expanding things like unemployment or for, like the coronavirus like relief packages or universal basic income. Like, are you opposed to any of those things? I tend to have very interesting political opinions because like everyone I'm surrounded with is very liberal, but yeah. my dad is like very conservative. So I definitely have some of those influences on me. But what I would prefer, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about helping people as much as you can, you know, and not letting anyone just go to the wolves. I'm yeah. very much for that. So what I would rather do rather than increase unemployment and those kinds of stimulus packages, although I think stimulus, like COVID stimulus packages right now is an exception to that because we're under extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. But I would rather boost it in a way, like, for example, increasing minimum wage to be able to help have these people, like put the money in the hands of the people yeah. so that they don't need to rely on the government as much. And then when you do that, then you you don't have to tax people as much to pay for that safety blanket. People are able to stand on their own two feet more. Although what I will say, I understand the danger of increasing the minimum wage is that you're redefining what the bottom looks like. So I'll give you an example. If you take McDonald's worker, which is everyone loves to use as the, the yeah. entry level job example, and now you're saying this is $15 an hour work. I think that's the number that Biden was talking about. Yeah. For example, I know my dad's company, which is a big international corporation you have, requires college education for their people to work there it's, it's a higher level job their entry level pay is $20 an hour so now everyone who comes in with $20 an hour they're like my you just redefined you know what yeah. 850 looks like so now my $20 is worth x amount yeah more. now instead of being worth more than double minimum wage it's only like an extra 25 percent on minimum wage yeah it's like I spent four years and thousands of dollars on my education and I would spend like 
the, the payback has been greatly reduced unless I get bumped. So like you'll have these pay bumps that, that ripple through everything. So now everything costs more and that would cause inflation or that's what, you know, my dad would say. Yeah. That's that argument. And I was talking to a friend about this the other day and his point was, well, the minimum wage is supposed to reflect the bare minimum of what it takes to survive. Yeah. And our minimum wage is way outdated. I forgot the, the date of the last time they, they calculated it, but you can't live on minimum wage, just on minimum wage in today's society yeah. anymore. So maybe it is time to like to reevaluate that so so people don't have to be working double jobs, you know, yeah. day jobs and a night job. And then they get they get in this trap because your hours you need to be dropping every hour into your work to be able to survive, especially if you have kids or, or yeah. whatever. And then you don't have enough free time to go to school and, and qualify yourself to right. to go to, higher. Yeah. For that upward mobility. Yeah. So it's like it's a really tricky situation because if you increase all these pays, you're gonna have tons of companies fold, right? Like the place that we work, for example, if now they had to pay all of us fifteen dollars an hour, I think they would go bankrupt. I don't think they could afford it. Yeah, they might. I think though at least with what Joe Biden was saying was that he wanted to like hand in hand with increasing minimum wage, give money to smaller businesses that would need it and are struggling because of like coronavirus so that they wouldn't go out of business when having to pay employees more so they can update and like be up and running with this new idea of what minimum wage is. Mm-hmm. And but, but where does the money come from? to boost the small businesses. I guess that would be like taxpayer um, dollars, I suppose. And I mean, whether... <laughs> you, just, you just triggered every, well, every conservative I, person I, that I, might be listening. I did trigger them, but it, it could be from a different thing. It's just because mm-hmm. it's from taxpayer dollars, that, that doesn't mean necessarily that your taxes would increase. You could take yeah. taxes from a different system that sure. tax money is already going to right now, take it away from that, put it towards something else. Right. Such as... Um, the universal basic income plan that like um, Yang was putting forth yeah. was taking money, was like getting rid of, um, what is it, Medicare or Medicaid? I always get the two confused. Mm-hmm. Getting rid of that completely and then replacing it with UBI. Oh, and I didn't know that that's what he was trying to do. I think I, might, I could have that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Okay. So I think part of it was that our like Medicare, Medicaid, whichever one it actually is, the one that's not for old people, the one that's for um, like people that are unemployed or can't work and yeah which i think is medicare but it's so like inefficient and there's so much taxpayer money wasted on that that you Mm -hmm. could actually pay for the large majority like like the 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 bulk of ubi just by transferring funds from one system to another because we do one system so poorly Mm. well what i will say part of the problem with things like ubi i think there's parts of it that are great and that make a lot of sense but a lot of the people that are in need don't have financial responsibility. Like they, they don't, they've not been taught that in a lot yeah. of cases or a lot of people I've talked to because growing up, everyone in their family has just been like the day-to-day survival. So people don't teach them in a lot of cases like, all right, we'll put 20% of everything you earn into the savings. This is how you should invest uh, and start growing yourself or, or whatever. And talk about retirement plans and, and all of that. And, building real estate and, and capital for yourself or whatever it's like these people aren't used to surviving so even if you hand them you know a thousand bucks or whatever there's no guarantee that they're gonna use it wisely and i don't mean to broadly stereotype and offend yeah. anybody no i get but, that and i think that's a fundamental thing that comes out of education yeah that 
as much as people love to point fingers at education, I think that's something that, that needs to be stressed more. Yeah, I, I do see that kind of thing. A lot of people that I know that like live paycheck to paycheck, sometimes I have conversations with them and they're talking about how their paycheck is going to come in this Friday. So they're excited to go do this thing. Like Exactly. It's like, why are you spending your money on a new computer or going out to the bar with your friends on your paycheck day? It's like you're you're making yourself continue to live paycheck to paycheck. Where if you chose to just refrain from you know that computer upgrade, spending your entire paycheck on it, I've talked to some people who do that. If you you know waited enough time and kept on saving your money, you wouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not so it's not to say that like people that are lower class are stupid or anything like that. I'm just yeah. but if you take away the safety blanket, like you know. Uh, healthcare or something in the form of UVI, if they don't use their money smartly, then they're really screwed. Then there's nothing to catch them. Yeah. So I can get on a certain amount, maybe not all the way there, but like I can get where a lot of like conservatives are coming from with the personal responsibility thing. Like, yeah, people do need to learn how to save and like, you know, protect themselves from the future and from yeah that kind of thing. But I don't know, at the same time, it's like you do, the the less money you have, the harder life becomes for you and you can get in these like vicious cycles. And I think sometimes you need uh, some sort of external support to get you out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of cases, if you gave people like UBI money, like $1,000 a month or something, maybe a lot of them would just decide to blow that extra money on something else. And instead of ever trying to save any money and they would just be continuing to live paycheck to paycheck yeah. and now their paycheck is just bigger. Right. But I think a lot of other people, I think you would still be doing a net good by all the people who now have the breathing room to actually start saving things, saving. Sure. Because I don't think it's necessarily true to say that everybody who is living paycheck to paycheck is spending that paycheck money on unnecessary, like, for, like just oh no definitely things. there's still a lot of yeah. people who really like they're only spending their money on sustaining their family or like paying off their debts and even then they can't do it so. right i guess yeah just the i guess my point was the danger is um if that if that money comes from removing the safety blanket right then it's then those people will be worse off oh yeah with the, the yang idea of it right taking away the, the medical but I'm, I'm all for giving uh, putting the hands money in the hands of the people and then taking away the taxes on more taxes on like corporations and business and that kind of thing i would much rather uh people be able to stand on their own two feet and be able to take away some more of like the, the government intervention yeah. i guess i think that just makes more sense yeah it becomes less complicated that way yeah and i don't know like as far as places that yeah i don't know what joe biden wants to do but for those conservatives who are wondering about uh where the taxes are coming from there are plenty mm-hmm. of good places to take it from. I'm sure some of them you wouldn't be happy with, but one that I'd be happy with is uh, taking it away from the military. Oh yeah, I'm with you there. We spend absolutely. We like we overspend by so much on the military, and we could still have like this this really you know prominent huge military that I know conservatives want to have. We could still have that if we spent just the amount less on it to afford these other things like UBI. Yeah, because. If you're spending $1,000 per person on UBI per month, that still amounts to only a fraction of what we're spending on the military. Right. So I, I'm that I'm 100% with you there. The only thing that I, I don't like is how people 
love to paint with a broad brush like these larger corporations and businesses as like the enemy and like oh these guys have got billions and billions of dollars lying around everywhere so like tax them <laughs> or whatever uh, and that's been something that's nice about having like my my dad as my father to like talk to because he works for like a bigger company like this i basically come to realize that even these giant million million dollar companies it's still just as much of a day-to-day struggle to survive and so like yeah. these tax things will like could like make or break their company which is why i think he tends to be more republican basically just for that reason of surviving and having a job to go back to yeah i i can get that to a certain degree but then to another side of it these giant companies maybe not all of them but a lot of them the ceos are paid like a crazy amount of money oh yeah so um, it's like oh my company like my company might like go under if you like tax me more yeah and like but what about your personal profits? Like, do you have to take that high of a profit margin? Couldn't right. you just give that back to your company so your company won't go under? Because right. Cause like, do you need do you need three hundred million dollars a year yeah, exactly. in salary? Probably not for sure. If you like, I know this is drastic, but just as an example, if you're a CEO making three hundred million dollars a year as your salary, because you're like one of the top Fortune five hundred companies or whatever, if you decided to instead make your salary what your lowest paid employee is getting. So you're getting like $55,000 a year instead. Mm-hmm. And you put all the rest of that money that you previously were making, just put it back into your company. You, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a struggling company. You wouldn't, you would have years worth of like security for your company. Sure. But I guess the argument against that was, would be if that's what you have to do to make it happen, then you're disincentivizing people, people to, to start companies. CEOs. Yeah. And have because, their own business. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, it's a fine line. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I like to play with the idea of having my own business one day. Yeah. And so I think about that a lot and all the all the costs and, and all of the uh, the loopholes you have to run through. So like if you want to open a restaurant, all the insane amount of health checks you have to pass and like random people showing up to like, I've, my girlfriend's parents own a restaurant and they've told me like, so they have like random health inspections, which is awesome. Like I think you shouldn't be able to sell garbage off the floor or whatever there's like that level of trust so that needs to be regulated yeah but they have these random people like it's someone different every time that doesn't know them and so some people are great and some people are like they'll have it's like a point system and so one of their fridges will be a degree off so then there's so many points off or one of their employees washes their hands and doesn't shut off the faucet with the paper towel so that's so many points off and it gets to a point where, like, now you're going to close unless you get these many points back the next time some random person shows up. And it's just, like, you're making it so hard, you know? We're just yeah. trying to feed our family or, like, get our kids to go to college. So that's that balancing act of, of yeah, regulating and overregulating versus making it possible and, and leaving the incentive there for people to go out and do it. Yeah. I suppose one way they could uh, change that that might help and – I'm sure they won't do this, but instead of relying on any individual health report that some guy from the health company that has to go to these restaurants and inspect them, instead of relying on like, you know, what you scored in August, you could take like your average for a whole period so that you would be Mm. evening out the temperament of this one guy who's having a bad day. So he takes it out on you by giving you a really shitty score on your health score of your restaurant. So instead of like, that guy coming in, he gives you a zero because he's just he just got a divorce and he, right. he finds a few things wrong and then he exaggerates them and 
your whole livelihood is depending on this one guy yeah or two guys or however long it takes to shut down a restaurant they could look at longer periods of time like oh your restaurant has been underperforming health-wise for two years running now so we're gonna shut you down right but then the like give more is, lenience to it i guess but then the danger is if you're you're doing really well at the beginning then you will probably just start to slack off a bit on the yeah, like purpose, purposely not do as well because you know you can afford it. Well, like to. you're not, you're not going to drill your employees every day on making yeah. sure like you sanitize everything every time because you'll be okay. Yeah. So, and I'd like to think people, you know, don't do that. I think it's common sense. Like the two of us having worked in a restaurant, I always try to be as sanitized and like yeah. responsible as possible because of that level of trust that you have with people coming in. And so I like to imagine most people feel like that, you know. But I guess people would always take advantage of the system if if they can. Yeah. There'll always be those people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that um, kind of line of thinking is is something that you see a lot more in um, like the conservative side of things. Oh yeah, and I, I know that's coming straight from from my yeah, parents. <laughs> where like you need to make things strict because otherwise people will take advantage of it. But then I mean, I guess in certain cases like like that one, it kind of works against a conservative mindset because you, if you're trying to be strict on health codes then that damages entrepreneurial behavior oh sure good point so with the um tax increase on the rich the four hundred thousand dollars or more that joe biden was talking about mm-hmm. raising it i think right now it's something like 21 percent. he wants to raise it to 28 percent. is that something you feel good or bad about i i don't like punishing the wealthy people for being successful I know that's kind of a loaded statement, but I think I understand helping people on the bottom, but a lot of people that are successful, some of them, it's kind of like their fortunes are handed to them or whatever, which is sure, but a lot of people put in a ton of work compared to other people who, you know, didn't feel like it. And so now when you start to punish those people at the top, it's going to de-incentivize. So I guess my example my dad likes to use this example he used to work down at like uh some dock or something so he would you know work hard and earn money so he could save and go to college or whatever but there was a lot of people who would just stop showing up and it was because they could only work so many hours to still get unemployment and so he likes to use that example of the fact that yes there are some people who um are just born at a disadvantage due to things outside of their control and it's unfair for those people to be punished but at the same time you'll always have people taking advantage of the system and if you start to just hurt the people at the top and like redistribute it down to the bottom it's making it harder for people to become successful or or to want to be successful when they can just reap the system yeah i think um that's mostly a devil's advocate statement i don't believe all of that necessarily but there's like an equally equal and opposite reaction to that i suppose that you could see Mm -hmm. is that these um successful entrepreneur entrepreneurs such as like what is displayed in the book outliers they so often turns out are products of really beneficial circumstances that were outside their control right. so they're just lucky people right because wasn't it was it bill gates that he talked about in that book where yeah. they were able to find out that they could input some number onto their big computing system at their college that and it gave would just them make 24 it access yeah, yeah so he could always just code and it like was either use... bill gates or the other guy who also had the first name bill 
and was a Silicon Valley guy. So they were very similar stories. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So that kind of stuff where it's just out like extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. So then the, you you could say we don't want to punish people from being entrepreneurial and from starting businesses. On the other hand, you could say, why should we reward people extra for things that they also didn't do? And oh, sure. I think like a lot the of lucky ones. Yeah. I think a lot of the mindset of being a CEO is thinking that you earned all this yourself when it so often turns out that, yeah, you put in effort and you're a hard worker and all that, but there's all these other things that you're not paying attention to that made you successful. Hmm. And somebody else who in, yeah, there's circumstances where people are less hardworking, but there's still plenty of people who are equally as hardworking as you are and their business idea didn't take off and yours just happened to, you know? Hmm. And if you think about it from a historical context, the (laughs) current rates of taxes on people that make four hundred thousand dollars or more is 21 percent that's like the lowest it's ever been in history in before um ronald reagan became president it was 75 percent oh my god and he cut it down he cut it down to i think 32 so he just slashed it like a ton i had no idea so and until like 1976 or whatever it was Mm -hmm. it was like a huge amount of your income and then another way to think about it is in terms of tax brackets, somebody who is making a shit ton of money is getting taxed less than somebody who is making $60,000 a year. In proportion to your total income, why should you get taxed less the more money you make? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. If, if anything, and I still have problems with the flat tax system, because as I've actually recently realized, it's not even a fair system in and of itself. But I'm more in favor of a flat tax than this anti-progressive tax system where the rich are getting taxed the least percentage-wise. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. So, it, like, if anything, we could we could just try to make it flat tax, and then there's some modicum of fairness involved there. And it's like, no matter who you are, you're getting taxed at this percentage number. I do think going, like, 40K and up yeah. is way too broad. So, like, if you're, if you're pulling down 40K and you've got a family of five... Well, it's, for, it's 400K to... for, um, for Joe Biden's thing, but... Oh! Yeah, not 40K. 40k is pretty low. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. If you have a family, you're you're in the poverty. If you yeah, if you make it 40,000, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so it's it's one percent of Americans are making more more oh, than four hundred thousand dollars a year. I see, I see. Yeah, so it's really only the rich people. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, I'm I'm making definitely not 400k. I'm making enough to survive. Yeah. So for me, it's like that level seems so ludicrous. 400k. Yeah. Whatever, but I'm sure if I ever make it there, yeah, that's it's like yeah. it's like I've got my own goals, or maybe I'm trying to do something that requires huge amounts of money. So you're like, well, screw you! Like I don't, I've got my own visions too, and now you're just taking it from me for having attained it. Yeah, I, that is that is a thing too that I see a lot. Um, people aren't currently in circumstances that they're rich, but they imagine that they can get there. Like it's the American dream kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. if I just put in enough effort, I will become. I will become rich. I'll, I'll find success, and I'll get to this point of of richness. So I don't want to tax the rich now because I could be rich later. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, well, one, it's very unlikely that that'll happen to you. And right. two, the whole purpose of taxing the rich is so that you can make life easier for people who are in poverty or in the middle classes, with the intention of building the economy and making it more vibrant and making everybody more of a participator in the economy and buying things. And if you give people that have very little money 
more money by say just decreasing their taxes and then increasing taxes on the rich that mm -hmm. allows them it makes it easier for people like in your position or in you know the average middle class position it makes it easier for you to actually become rich in the future mm. so by increasing the taxes on the rich now and read i hate and I, I know people hate the word the term redistributing wealth from yeah. a conservative perspective you hate that term but if you redistribute some wealth to the lower classes, you make it easier for the lower class. You, you give them more upward mobility so that more people can join the upper classes. So this, this idea that maybe one day you will become successful and start your own business and become rich, it's harder for you if you're giving the rich people such leeway. If you increase taxes on them so that you can give back to the rest of society, now it's easier for the rest of society to, to meet them, to come up to their level. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe it's like my personality trait, but I think what always pushes me away from that is it feels like very inherently selfish. Because so I'm like, oh well, they made it yeah. this way, but now I'm like, oh, screw you, I want to do it an easier way. So give me your money. <laughs> and I know there's there's people that 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 would affect that need it a lot more yeah. than me, and so that I get. But I think that's part of my initial like gut reaction of why I don't like that idea. Yeah, I think yeah, from that perspective or from like a different way you could probably put selfishness on both sides because like from a person who's making over four hundred thousand dollars a year like is it selfish of them to like fight against their taxes being being raised because like they just want they want that money they don't want to let it help other people because that's i guess the intention maybe they don't think of it that way maybe they like think that it's not actually going to help people so it's a it's a waste of money for them to get taxed but if the taxes are actually going to be helping other people then it does seem selfish of a rich person to fight against their taxes getting raised yeah but it's also, it's like a broad brush of yeah. like the, those people and like often it may, i feel like it's oh you're making money I'm like screw you i want money too so give me some yeah i just i don't know like from my perspective i think it's more of a just trying to make it more fair and not uh, give people extra income for already being rich you know it's like it's kind of like making it spiral in both directions like if you're not very well off it's making it harder and harder for you and if you are well off it's making it easier and easier for you right and like just trying to trying to it out yeah of trying to try to make it basically equality of opportunity for everybody right which is like what ideally this country stands on yeah yeah. And which is different from a quality of outcome, because you're not saying that, like, no matter what you do, you're going to be making this amount of money. It's mm -hmm. like you still have to try, but you're giving people the actual ability to even do it in sure. the first place, to, to even try. Right. Because like you were saying before, with people who are working minimum wage jobs and they don't have the time to go to school because they have to spend as much time as they can working to actually feed their family. Right. It's like those people don't have any ability to move upwards because they have to spend so much of their time doing something that they don't want to be doing, but they're forced into. And if you uh, redistributed some wealth to them now, they wouldn't have to work so much and could spend that time going to school. Right. Yeah. Okay. I agree with you there. Yeah, for sure. Because it's not like school's an easy way out. It, that's It's so much work and, and stuff. Yeah. So you, you still, still have, have to have put in effort. Right. It's not just giving people easy answers or like giving people free rides to things. Right. You're just opening some doors so that yeah. they can put in the work if they want to. Yeah. yeah. And also the same the thing with, um, for instance, like UBI again. If you're giving lower classes, or, I mean, really it's 
UBI, it's universal, so you're giving everybody. But if you're giving lower classes extra money, it's not like you're making them rich. It's not like you're even, from the perspective of a lower class person, an extra $1,000 a month is a big deal. From the perspective oh, yeah. of a person who's making $400,000 a year, an extra $1,000 a month is not such a big deal. Right. It's pretty negligible. So like you're really improving one person's life at the cost of very slightly decreasing the quality of another person's life, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. I don't even know if, like, they say that's the limit on how much money affects your happiness. Like, after a certain point, you no longer become extra happy or your life doesn't get better after a certain point in, like, how much money you earn. They say that point is $100,000. Oh, really? So, like, the more money you earn up to $100,000, the happier you get because you can, you know, you live stop comfortably. About, yeah, stop worrying about money all the time. And then and they, they say after $100,000, your life doesn't... I mean, obviously, now you can buy jets and yachts or you can you can do extra things, but it doesn't actually affect your happiness when people, you know, do happiness surveys. Sure. So I don't even know that that $1,000 a month, this isn't even how it would work. But if we were taking just directly, if you make $400,000 a month, I make $1,000 a month. And if we take 1000 from you and give it to me, it's not going to affect your happiness at all because you're already above that threshold. And it's going to affect my happiness it's going to double it because right. I'm, I'm making so little. Yeah. I see that argument. I feel like people would still get pissed about it though. Yeah. The, yeah. It, people don't like an interference on the things, but I don't know. It's like, do you still oppose interference when the system that you're interfering upon is so flawed to begin with? Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like your arm is bleeding and a bandaid is interference, but you might need it. Sure. I like that way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's cool. All right, well, we've been going for about two hours-ish now. Okay. So before we end, I've been doing this with every episode. Okay. Favorite book or just a book recommendation for the audience? I love Kurt Vonnegut a what, lot. Um, do you have a specific book? Yeah, I'm, I've been reading a lot of his stuff lately. I think I still think about Jailbird a lot. It's such, it's so clever. Like some of the character arcs in there and like the way that people are related that like, their relationship is like revealed over time is so is so interesting and he always goes an unexpected route that I never I never uh, expect but it's he's a fantastic writer super yeah. funny super smart and he's always got something interesting to say about like our society so Kurt Vonnegut yeah. Jailbird yeah I've, I haven't read out. Jailbird but I've read Slaughterhouse Five that's one of his uh, biggest ones yeah and it's got a lot at least to me it felt a lot more serious than his other works oh, okay so if you if that's like all you know from him because i think i know a lot of people read that in school and stuff because because of, of its world war ii yeah. uh, prevalence you should read some other stuff by him yeah and he, he's got a pretty mixed bag he gets pretty heavily into sci-fi in like the middle of his career and it gets pretty strange and people aren't I mean, slaughterhouse five is kind of sci-fi oh yeah it's with the truffle Dorians yeah. or whatever <laughs> yeah but the be- people like to say that his golden age is the beginning of his career and the end of his career oh, and okay. so you should uh He's got Cat's Cradle is a good one. Yeah. Sirens of Titan is a good one. Um, yeah, we've got to read more by him for sure. He's great. I, I like him. And then uh, I know you just asked me for one, but oh no, it's getting more is fine. I also like uh, Skinny Life with Woodpecker. That's a Tom Robbins book. Tom Robbins is great too. Those those two are in a similar vein in their writing styles. Tom Robbins is a bit harder to digest, I think, just from it's it feels a lot more confusing when you read it. It's like more intricate, but um. 
he's a beautiful writer and he's got interesting things to say about society and skinny life with woodpecker is good and he's kind of weird you know but i love i love weird authors and just like getting a, a view into their mind like yeah. how it works so those are some great ones nice yeah that is pretty cool when authors have unique writing styles and it makes you think in a different way than you normally do yeah you, you can just tell that they are completely living in their their own world yeah. and you just get to see like a little bit of, of the madness I, I love it yeah that's one thing i like about reading in general like if it's fiction like if you're reading from a character's perspective or lots of characters perspectives i feel like it allows you to live more lives than just what you otherwise would have there's this quote um that i like that goes something like a man who never reads lives only one life a man who reads lives like a thousand before he dies oh i like that yeah something like that but. yeah yeah absolutely because if you think about watching a movie or something there's only it's it's more largely your perception of like what they're trying to show you than yeah. versus when you're reading it feels almost like you're just digesting their direct thoughts yeah uh, and you can get a lot closer to their intention i feel like yeah written it's still your perception but i think you get a lot closer to the their heart or whatever that's not a cheesy but yeah well yeah, yeah with a book it's definitely more direct just author to you and maybe an editor look in there but yeah. like with a movie yeah, you've got the like screenwriter author whoever made the original thing then the director who's imposing their own idea on it and then all the actors and then you've got so many wardrobe steps and along and the way that are and, yeah. yeah other people's influence getting right. in there so it's not just one person's take on an idea right it's a ton of people's yeah yeah cool well thank you for podcasting with me yeah thanks for having me wayne it was a lot of fun yeah it was cool i enjoyed learning about things any parting words any parting words uh support your local ballet theater <laughs> i guess in in these times if you've never been to one you should go if you've yeah. only been to the nutcracker go to something else it, it's it's a whole world i feel like a lot of people don't know about it so definitely yeah. check it out for sure yeah i'll definitely go when is the do you know like the date of the upcoming next performance i think here in milwaukee the next big one we're gonna do is february oh, okay or something after nutcracker is done Okay, cool. So check it out.